If you've been looking for inspiration, hope, and an insightful look into literacy transformation, you have found the right place. This mini-series is a convergence of ideas, experiences, and aspirations, a symphony of voices that will resonate far beyond the sound waves of our voices. So, with hearts full of hope, minds open to possibility, let us dive into the rich tapestry of discussions, ideas, and dreams that await us. Together, as literacy leaders, let us be the change we wish to see in this world. Thank you for joining us on this remarkable journey towards a brighter future and a more literate society. Welcome, friends. We are here for our next episode of our Literacy Leadership mini-series podcast. And I am Terry Nolan here with my esteemed colleagues and podcast host, Linda Diamond, Dr. Tracy White-Wheaton, and Dr. Tim Odegaard. And today we are going to be talking about pre-service, a critical component when it comes to making sure that all levels of works that we do to change the outcomes of literacy are going to be addressed. I'm going to bring in my co-host, Tim Odegaard, to announce our special guest and kick off this episode. Oh, thank you so much, my friend, Terry. It is our pleasure to bring to our podcast today for you guys, Dr. Stephanie Stoller. She is the founder of the Reading Science Academy, a part-time assistant professor in the Reading Science Program at Mount St. Joseph University, and a founding member of a national alliance to support the science of reading in higher education. As a board member of the Innovations in Education Consortium, she collaboratively plans the MTSS Innovations in Education Conference. She has provided professional development, published and conducted research in the area of assessment, early intervention, and collaborative problem solving. She is passionate about increasing educator knowledge and aligning systems to prevent and intervene on reading difficulties. And she also happens to be a dear friend of all of us here on this podcast and a wicked DJ if you happen to know about it. So thank you so much, Dr. Stoller, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that kind introduction. And we'll spin some tunes towards the end of our podcast. Thank you. Just kidding. Oh, just kidding. But you know, you're also a wicked dance queen. I want to kick it off here. I think a lot of the listeners here are wanting us to really highlight the role of higher education and how we can develop quality educators to meet the needs for our workforce in public education, but most importantly, meet the needs of children in the classroom. So there's a big question right there. The elephant in the room is, why is there such a disconnect between what educators are taught about how to teach children to read and write and the well-established science of reading and writing? Yeah, that is a big topic and a big question. I have, in some ways, limited experience in universities. So in many ways, coming to support folks in higher education as an outsider. I went through a PhD program myself in school psychology. I worked as an adjunct while I was getting my degree. I taught for two years in a school psychology program at the University of South Florida. And then I was an adjunct for, I think, six years before I took the position I have now as a part-time assistant professor at Mount St. Joseph University. And in between those experiences, I did a lot of work with in-service teachers, consulting with school districts. So 
I don't feel like I have extensive experience in universities, but from my perspective, the culture within universities is unique and it's very siloed. And colleges of education are their own entity. And the culture, I would say, from my experience in a college of ed versus arts and sciences or some other type of program is a culture that is not as interested in stepping in and making change. It's not an environment of inserting control into schools or necessarily intervening. It's a more developmental kind of perspective is the way that I want to describe it. In colleges of education, it's about nurturing. It's about supporting. It's not as much about intervening or changing the course that children are on. In my experience, part of that is that folks have gotten this belief system that reading specifically is natural. And if we just create the right environment, the child will come to reading on their own without much intervention or interference from the outside. And that tends to permeate what gets transmitted to teachers in training. There's very much an ethos of trust your gut, teaching more as an art than a science, not wanting to insert control into the environment. So that's one of the elements in my experience that makes this gap between what we know in research that might be conducted in other programs, departments, schools, right down the hallway from the College of Education in psychology, communication sciences, cognitive science. They're producing information about how learning happens, how teaching works best, how humans learn. And that is, in some ways, in my experience, rejected by the folks who are training our teachers and other educators. So it's this siloed effect. It's this different set of belief systems or worldviews, if you want to think about it that way, that from the beginning, teachers are not supported to learn about research, to know how to read research, to conduct research, and really not supported to think about themselves as having control and being able to influence the learning of reading for young children. So just some thoughts from my experience, I think. Well, there was a whole lot there, actually. That last bit about that lack of engagement with the research literature and what we're learning from the research in particular by the current faculties of education, I just, that's a big statement to say that they're not actually engaging. And if I were to think of any other profession that has a scientific basis to think that they were not engaging, that I'm not learning about cancer and bringing cancer innovation to the front to save lives, for example. If I wasn't learning about how to produce what we need for a society as far as our infrastructure to drive our road construction, our building integrity to make safer homes, that seems like it would be a big liability societally. So I'm just going to do a follow-up, but I'd also like my co-host to chime in if they'd like. But do you view this as a liability at a societal level that if what you say is honestly true, educators that are training our next generation of educators aren't actually willing to engage and learn from empirical research. That has largely been my experience. And I hear from many, many educators that they did not have preparation in reading empirical research. 
or participating in it during their preparation. Yes, I think it's a huge liability. I think it's an enormous problem. I think it, oh boy, I'm going to make a bold statement, but I'm afraid that in my experience, we are too willing to accept failure in reading as a society. We're too willing to say that's somebody else's problem or it's the problem of the child or it's the fault of the family. We do a lot of externalizing about reading. I don't see a lot of ownership for the horrible reading outcomes that we get in the face of the science that we do have. So in my experience, the research that teacher candidates might be exposed to is qualitative. It's of the variety that is experiential, observational, case studies, and there's a mindset that you accept what is and you're just observing what is and describing what is, and that people can have different experiences. Again, not that you should be influencing what's happening in those experiences through instruction. So it's not a complete absence of research, but it's a different type of research that is valued in schools of education. And that type is not experimental and quasi-experimental research. I'm making a generalization, but that's been my experience. Yeah, and I want to contextualize that. Qualitative research is important, and there's certain questions that we can only answer using qualitative. So I just heard you share that, and you're not saying that qualitative research is not of value. Absolutely not. And I would like to say, too, I am known primarily as being a quantitative researcher. However, I value qualitative research. I work with colleagues on our faculty in the Lit Studies PhD program who do great research, and I'm currently even collaborating with them to do mixed methods analyses of work. And I think that's really critically important. And also as a cognitive scientist, I use self-reports to get at memory processes and actually arguing that if it was a phenomenology that's conscious, then we could be able to report on it, understanding that perceptual biases could come into play. So in psychological science, we've got a long tradition of trying to use approaches that do it. So for our listeners, Dr. Stoller is not saying that there's not value to qualitative research. She's saying that it has a specific role to play and that we could address different questions with different approaches and methodologies. That's right. And I'm also saying that in my experience, the quantitative research, the empirical research, what we know about the teaching methods that work better than others, that's excluded from the training in many cases. Thank you for clarifying that I'm not discrediting. I'm trying to draw a distinction between the kinds of questions that we need addressed when it comes to reading instruction and the methods that are best used for answering those questions. Yeah. And we have enough bluster and warring going on. And I want us to make sure that our listeners are hearing what we're really saying. And we're not going to provide some kind of a soundbite for someone to take and decontextualize to say that, oh, did you not hear them? They said that qualitative research is bliss. No, it has great value and we've learned a lot from it. And we can move even further on certain questions by taking a quantitative, experimental, quasi-experimental, and different methodology of approach. Linda, I saw you have your hand raised. I have a feeling, and Stephanie, you may be able to share your perspective. Many syllabi that I see ask this question, what's your personal philosophy of teaching reading? 
I know you know this, Stephanie. And how did you learn to read? That's on, I would say, over 60% of the syllabi that I have looked at as a question. Just the asking of that question conveys a perspective that the teaching of reading is a philosophy, that it's not a science. And in my experience, many of the professors who are teaching these education courses, and this is certainly the case in California, are retired former school educators, school administrators, and not necessarily folks that have engaged in research, either qualitative or quantitative, on their own. And I'm wondering if that plays into the disconnect in your view, Stephanie. Yes, yes, I'm sure that it does because it's a cycle that gets perpetuated, right? So you weren't prepared with a certain body of knowledge and then you're practicing in a certain way and then you go on to be an instructor in the university where you're perpetuating the same kinds of things. And it's siloed, it's insular, it's not a system that's open and informed broadly. Tracy, then I think about Mount St. Joseph. What happens when an organization, an institute of higher learning is committed to educator success? You know, we cannot prevent student failure if we do not prevent educator failure. What happens when there is a vision and a mission-driven focus? We want to make sure that we're apprenticing educators well and in an unsiloed banner. What are the possibilities? Well, you can get a lot more done when everybody is on the same page. You can be a lot more efficient and effective. You can get a joy out of your work because you see the result. You see the students you're putting out into the schools who are giving you the feedback that they are effective with their students. I'm smiling because I had the most amazing conversation with one of my graduate students last night. And I just was, I was on fire after talking to her. And I was smiling, my cheeks hurt at the end of the conversation. I was so proud of what she was doing as a first grade teacher. And so I think that comes from the fact that before my time at Mount St. Joe, Amy Murdoch set that vision and commitment to a training model that would give teachers the confidence to go out and change the world for kids. And there's nothing like it to see that actually happening. So I could give you lots of particulars of, you know, the the good, bad and ugly about how things go. We're fortunate to be able to feel that joy and success in the work that we're doing. It's been a lot of work and we are nowhere near finished with the work. We get a lot of attention, which is very gratifying, like being asked to do this conversation. We are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We do not have it all figured out. But our dean has set the tone for everything that we do, not just in our reading science program, but across our entire school of education. And she has created an environment where everybody is learning about and committed to the science of learning. 
And our hiring decisions are based on that. Our selection of doctoral students is based on that. Everything we do is directed towards that commitment and that vision that she and Amy have set for us. So it's a wonderful thing to work in an organization like that. I just have to say how grateful I am. A joy transfers to me is, in my opinion, our profession, the most honorable of professions. No other profession exists without this one. And last night, we had a celebration of our adult literacy students who are dyslexic and learning to read. And we have one who's 88 years old who is planning to read at Christmas time to his grandchildren for the first time. Oh, wow. Well, that, that just filled me with joy, but I couldn't help thinking, Stephanie, what would have happened if we had prevented these failures for individuals who deserve this as a human right? That's right. Yeah. And it is preventable. That's what has driven me my entire career. I couldn't tolerate that I became a school psychologist knowing more about reading than the educators I was working with. And then I spent many years trying to influence change with in-service teachers and finally decided I needed to go to the source with the pre-service training. It's preventable and teachers deserve to have the knowledge that other people do. (laughs) Other people know more about reading and about how to teach it. And our classroom teachers deserve that information. I heard something that you said there that reminds me of what really keeps me engaged in the work that we do in higher ed, which is a vision and a legacy. So you spoke to the vision of Dr. Amy Murdoch, who I really champion, and I'm so glad that she's doing it. And also the vision is clearly stated. I think of the legacy that I take on in my chair at the Middle Tennessee State University of Diane Sawyer, who set up a PhD in literacy studies with a slightly different mission. And I was on a call earlier, smiling ear to ear, when I was on a high-level call with people from the Department of Education about some work we're going to be doing with a literacy summit up in Montana, and I was on with Dr. Rachel Gott and Dr. Neil Thompson, who are leaders in the science of reading, one at the State Department of Education and one as a thought leader. And one of the first products of what Diane's vision was to produce the next generation of educational leaders. And then I think of my own legacy now as having produced Dr. Jessica Dainty, who was the dyslexia coordinator now for the Tennessee Department of Education. So I know that I used to, when I was more into psychological science, I'm glad that one of my alums is a professor at University of Michigan. I've got one who's at Notre Dame. I've got one at a pediatric research center at a children's hospital. I've got one who works right here with me leading our research efforts. So I think it's that legacy and knowing that we are generationally producing the people to do the work. And your program and kind of our Lit Studies program are like sister programs in the sense that we've got slightly different intentions around what we do. We produce a lot of people that stay in the public school setting, like at the classroom level or at the administration level. But really, I think Diane's real vision was to produce the leaders in the field at a high level. And I think she can rest easy at night knowing that she's done that with her vision. Terry, I know you had a question that you were just wanting to get out there. Well, Stephanie, listening to you talk about this siloing that's happening and going on, building on my own experience going through my PhD program, and this was the tone that was set. And I know all of us have heard it in academia. You either publish or perish. And so people internalize that. I have to make a name for myself in this academic world. I have to get my perspectives, cutting edge 
research out there. I've got to get published. It's my livelihood. And it starts to feed into a little bit, maybe ego that starts to happen. And I see that as a component of, okay, now I've got more papers than you've got published. And it was just this culture that was happening. Is that a component and a piece of the culture of this siloing? Yes, that has been my experience until working at Mount St. Joe. Being a professor is in many ways a very lonely endeavor because most university programs are not collaborative in nature. You are thrown into that environment to sink or swim on your own. And maybe you have a good mentor who helps you in the beginning. And if you're inclined, you can forge some collaborative relationships with folks. But mostly your work is independent and you are expected to produce on your own. You know, that's a difference among programs. Not every professor has the same role and the same responsibilities and the same balance of the teaching, the research and the service that all professors are expected to do. But even those who are emphasizing teaching perhaps a little bit more so on balance from the research that they're doing, there's siloing and individualization there. For example, it is not common for professors to share their course syllabi. It's not common for professors to collaborate to develop a course. It's not common to even share with folks outside of your university what textbook you're using or any activities that you're doing or the sequence of the content of your course, all of those things are considered very proprietary and held and guarded very closely. So this is one of the things that I've found as I've moved into this space of supporting teacher prep folks to move towards the science of reading is that there is a reluctance to share. So my whole idea when I started in this work a couple of years ago, because people were coming to me, university professors were coming to me and asking questions about the science of reading, where could they learn? My first instinct was to put them together. So that's the STARS and Higher Ed Alliance that we created. And we now have a national group of folks who are trying to elevate and give a voice and provide some opportunities for networking and for learning together. And that is a foreign concept to these folks. It has been difficult to get them to admit what they don't know, to state publicly what they would like to learn or what their needs are, and to be willing to share resources. Now, the people who are stepping forward, I fully recognize I'm working with the willing. The people who are stepping forward have this initial hesitation when they first enter some of these meetings and groups. But I can tell you, as soon as they realize it's a safe environment and it will be productive use of their time, they are so grateful and thankful for the resources that get shared and for the community that's being created. Because at first, and still in many cases, it was one professor within a school of ed who had heard this phrase, the science of reading. I'll tell you the case example. Heard the phrase, the science of reading. They're in lockdown during the pandemic. They're watching their own child's reading instruction over Zoom. And 
they are seeing their child struggle and they're having this moment of reckoning, realizing that what is being taught to their child and not working is what they are preparing other teachers in. And it has opened up the floodgate for people. It's a strange thing that's happened. So now there's this curiosity and these people literally came out of nowhere and somehow started to, you know, gravitate together. And so as soon as they have realized that there is an environment that's safe, where they're not going to be judged, where they're going to be given time and opportunity to learn and discuss, they are loving it. We just had a meeting today. One of these environments is hosted by Carrie Curdo at the Reading League. Second Friday of every month, 2.30 to 4 o'clock Eastern, she hosts a group of university professors, and they were so engaged today. Somebody would share a problem of practice. This is something I'm struggling with. I'm looking for resources. And everybody just was happy to say, here's my example. Take mine. Why don't you try this? This has worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. It's a beautiful thing. So it's those kinds of small steps in the right direction that I'm really encouraged by. I'm not naive. I recognize that these are the willing and these are small steps, but I am very optimistic and encouraged that we're moving in the right direction and we have enough momentum, I think, now with everything happening around higher ed that we might finally get it right in higher ed this time around. I'm hopeful. The leadership moment that I saw in that is having the vulnerability to say, when I help you get better, we all get better and ultimately our kids get better. That's the yes. leadership moment that came out for me. Yes. And that kids getting better part is the bottom line. That's the common thread. You know, I get sort of annoyed at all the finger pointing at higher ed. Maybe I feel protective because that's my people. I get a little annoyed at the finger pointing and judgment that is passed. And, you know, we haven't been getting it right. I'm the first to admit it. The word silo is so powerful. And I think about my preparation program, master's degree to become a principal, doctoral work to become a superintendent, and how I was ill-prepared to scale this work responsibly and sustainably. I think about the teachers who would come to me when we got it right. We didn't get a lot of things right when I was leading in a district. And this individual would say to me, could you talk to my principal so that they would allow me to do the right work? So I'm wondering about that upstream issue of educators who are leading systems who may also be influenced to be ego-driven and when they step into that seat, want to do something that's brand new and shiny versus the right work and sustaining that work. What are the implications for preparing leaders for the right work? This is the next frontier, I think. And you're doing this work with the support of the superintendents. I don't see enough of that. We need to clone you, Tracy, and spread you around. I think this is currently our biggest challenge is in the preparation of school leaders and in the support of school leaders to learn about the science of reading in all of its components, particularly what you said about the scaling and sustainability of change. So they don't have the content knowledge about reading. Many of those leaders weren't prepared with that, just like our teachers weren't prepared with it. And they're not supported now that they're on the job. What's the infrastructure to support 
those school leaders. That's what we really need to build. Because in many cases, in my interactions with teachers, they're ready to go. They're on fire. They're making change. They've learned. They're ready to learn more. They're making changes to their instructional practices. But sometimes that school leader is holding them back. And so I think that's really the next bit of work. I'm not going to take that on, but I'm glad that you are. Well, I appreciate that. As I was hearing that dialogue, I was reminded of earlier in the day, I was popping in, I was walking the floor, checking in with my staff and popped in one of my assistant director's office. And she had one of Hollis Scarborough's articles. And it was the one where Hollis quoted Thomas Huxley at the beginning. And the quote was, the great tragedy of science, the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact. And it really reminded me of how scary science can be for a lot of people. It's really unforgiving. But I was also reminded as I was listening to Tichnet Han and one of his readings from The Art of Living, science is the pursuit of understanding, but there's specific methods that we use and we follow those methods and we have to trust the conclusions that are drawn. But it's the more compassionate, more Buddhist side as Tichnet Han was a Buddhist way of thinking about it. And my issues with the science of reading as a term early on when I was introduced to it by Barbara Wilson was that science is a methodology and approach, not a thing. The knowledge and understanding that we come to from that is what the thing is. It's an approach that we use to gain understanding. And when we follow this process, it can lead us to have to slay our darlings. So I think that's scary for a lot of people. And for those of us who live and die by science, it really is a knife fight. You know, you have to be willing to cut what is not confirmed and know that you go under the peer review process to make sure that the methodology can confirm what you've done. And having a neuroscience background, I always know I love neuroscience because the discussions are the shortest part of the article. <laughs> you state what you found and nothing more. Which brings us into another question for you that I really was pondering. Do you see any trends across the colleges of education, which is driving or might be used to find out which ones are really motivated to adopt a science of reading approach? Yeah. Like I said earlier, the trend that I think I see is this being led by individuals. It's an individual who's had an experience that has changed their way of thinking about the way they prepare teachers. So I was working during the Reading First era, and there were expectations on higher ed as part of that initiative that didn't come to fruition, that didn't bear fruit. And that was very disappointing. The higher ed was able to dig their heels in and resist the change. And now this is different because the trend is that it's individuals who are taking some new control of the courses that they teach and their own professional learning. And they're having to step out of their comfort zone and not just accept the syllabus that was given to them or the expectation within their program, but step forward in leadership to say, this is something that we need to be doing as a country. We have an obligation here a responsibility. And there's something I'm learning that I would like to include in my coursework. And I would like to share it with my colleagues within the program. So it's this grassroots trend, I guess, that I'm seeing that is happening within 
some interesting contexts where I see an acceleration happening is when there are policies at the state level, when there are initiatives at the state level that create an environment for those individuals to have a lifeline. So they have something they can latch onto. They can say, well, you know, our teacher licensing standards have just changed, right? It gives that individual within their college of ed the opportunity to link to something that's bigger than them and something that is maybe an external force also pushing in this direction. And it can help them make change with their colleagues and with their deans, their program directors, and so forth. That's really insightful. And I think about how I saw trends in the policy landscape as well. It's often a grassroots movement there. I think of Reading First and No Child Left Behind as a real top-down initiative that just didn't meet the needs of our states and our local agencies. But we've really seen a reaction that's more like a hydra. You cut one head off, you have another with the parents in particular, and sometimes parent educators really advancing for this policy. So I've seen that also play out in the policy work that we see across the nation that started primarily with dyslexia legislation, more of a right to read. What do you think the role of policy is as far as helping to enable a context for higher education? I think it can play an enabling role. So that's a good word that you use there. I don't think it's the only factor. Again, that's what we saw in Reading First. It can't just be top-down. It can't only be about accountability. This is not my realm of work. I'll just say that, first of all. But as an outside observer, I've seen it be very helpful when there are policies about teacher licensure. So changes to the licensure exam to get that lined up with the reading research, when there are changes in the teacher licensure standards, and when those things are aligned, the licensure standards and the exam, when they're both in sync and lined up to the research, when the state can provide opportunities, expectations, and opportunities for higher ed to make changes. In Ohio, for example, there's been great leadership out of our Department of Education to make that happen. They've provided ongoing professional development for university professors. They've provided training in collaboration with local districts, which is a fantastic opportunity. And they provided funding stipends for professors to have the time to make changes to their coursework. And the last policy effort that I think is really important is getting to a level of a minimally adequate number of courses. So this is one of the things that these professors who want to make change are hitting their heads against. They may have two courses on reading. That's it. In the preparation of teachers, they get two courses on reading and they're figuring out how do I distill the science of reading into two 15-week experiences for people. It's impossible. They might have three courses. So I think at the policy level, if states could implement a minimally adequate number of reading courses. I'm not sure what that number is. In Ohio, we have a mandate for four courses for all of our teacher preparation programs. And we never feel like four is enough, but maybe four is a minimally adequate number so that these professors don't have to go and fight and argue with their university, with their program directors, their chairs, and their deans to add a course, or they don't have to try to wrestle away from their colleagues 
some course that they're teaching or infiltrate their course with their reading content. If we had an expectation that we're training professionals and it takes time and the training in the coursework is just step one, we have to have that apprenticeship experience. We have to have those practical field experiences to go along with it. So those would be my list of policy efforts that could be helpful. Yeah, I'm going to chime in there because I've done a lot of work in this space kind of reluctantly. But you mentioned a couple of people who I really think highly of, the Ohio Department of Education in particular and the strong team you have up there I've had the pleasure of working with in the past. So that's really important. And one of the things that I want to highlight is that I want to speak directly to those parent advocates at the legislative initiative. I think we have to find a way to be more thoughtful and to work in ways to build trust around legislation and partner with those departments of ed so that when they want to engage with others like me and they're doing this work, there's a timeline and the resources needed to be successful. I think that's so mission critical mm -hmm. because if we don't set ourselves up with a time scale, it takes trust. You have to trust that they'll do the work. Then we really put them behind the eight ball from day one. And I think it's really critical when you have the opportunity, like we've seen in Mississippi and Arkansas and Ohio and so many other places, Rhode Island now is making great strides and we're able to partner with them on some work right now as well. I think that we need to set people up with success and success, I keep saying, is time and time takes money. It takes time, as you said, to teach those courses. That's a thinking about what we should be doing and where do we put our value into the classes that we offer but also thinking around the timeline needed. We want everything today, and I'm not saying it needs to be five, 10 years, but we do have to set initiatives up with the right resources that's needed. And I do think that there's a lot of fences to be mended between parents and the education community, especially in the dyslexia world. But when we don't have communication up front, it causes breakdown in the implementation and the development is what I've seen time and time again in my work. I want to piggyback on that because... Another thing that I think could be enormously helpful and time-saving is to integrate initiatives at the state level. Talk about silos. You know, we have a PBIS initiative, we have an MTSS initiative, and we have dyslexia legislation. And people are not integrating these things sufficiently at the state level, and so they're not integrated at the school level. So I think that would be an enormous advantage in terms of policy if we could get those things integrated. And I view that as taking relationships, partnerships, and trust, because that's what we really need. Tracy, you were going to ask a question, and then I'm going to pass it over to Linda to keep talking with you a little bit, Stephanie. I'm thinking about a state where I have the opportunity to provide support in an advisory way. Unfortunately, they didn't listen, but the point was, if we don't deal with the upstream issue of engaging universities, we can train a whole state of teachers, but we haven't dealt with the root issue. So from your experience, what's the most honorable way to engage and do this work with universities? You also mentioned when you give people an experience, then you're in a position to really help them understand the opportunity in front of them. How can you be more strategic about working smarter in this space with university partners? I think engage them in conversation. Like I said, the finger pointing, the blaming, the judging doesn't open a conversation. So I think we have to change the tone and we have to recognize the value 
people have built careers. They have accomplished good work and we can't act like it's all for nothing. And we have to recognize that the common theme and what will bind us together is children. You can take people who are resistant to training folks in the science of reading. They want good outcomes for students. I might disagree with their approach or their methods, but the commonality is that they want good outcomes. So I think that's a way to start to build the kind of bridge that we need. And we really need an infrastructure for this change to happen. We need collaboratives. We need learning opportunities. We need, as Tim said, time for people to rework their courses, time for them to learn because you can't teach what you don't know what you've never done. One of the most powerful ways that I've seen districts engage universities is when the superintendent comes to the university and says, I am spending X number of dollars and X number of months retraining the people who have spent four years with you. And we have started doing something different in our schools. I would like you to come and observe us. I'd like you to send your faculty to sit in my classrooms. We have a book study coming up next week. Would you send your faculty? We're offering Linda Diamond to come and do professional development. Would you send your faculty to come and experience that? That is one of the most powerful ways to make change in higher ed. Because to put it bluntly, that's the customer. The superintendent is hiring those graduates and to hear from your customer that you're not quite getting it right for the needs of that school. That's a powerful influence for change. I think about Texas, Stephanie, where we have around 200 ACP alternative certification mm -hmm. programs. And so I see some universities are stepping out boldly into reinventing how we apprentice based on the science. And others are becoming irrelevant and don't seem to get that their numbers are dwindling for a reason. Yes. It's not the primary motivator, but I always tell people when they come to Mount St. Joseph University with questions and interest, we tell them lots of things, but we also tell them we are overrun with business. We are overrun with business. Our undergraduate training program, our Graduate training programs are full for a year and a half. We have cohorts full into the future. We have currently 170 applicants for our doctoral program. Our provost knows exactly what we're doing. Our president knows exactly what we're doing. And they are supporting us. They are out in the world talking about us. So, you know, that's not the reason to change. But if you move in this direction, it's good for university business. Yeah, that's something that's really relevant. And so many of our colleges of education are dwindling in a dying breed. And it's really difficult to try to think again and to figure out where innovation can be. And it can really be that simple, everybody. Yeah. It's just adopting what works and seeing the fruits of the, that adoption. Linda, I'm going to pass the mic to you. Thanks, Tim. Wow, Stephanie, you said so many things that I wanted to pick up on. I'm in California. We're way behind in so many things. But we finally passed legislation that is changing the way that 
teachers are going to be prepared. Yes. And the state provided funding to two groups that are working together on revamping their teacher prep programs, a Northern California group and a Southern California group. I think you know about this. I do. And the other thing that they finally have done, which you talked about, is they're changing the requirements for teacher certification along with what the test will be that teachers need. Great. And so that's a really good example of where the policy work can have an impact. What they haven't done is provided any kind of overall state guidance or direction to school systems or any plan for any kind of long-term professional learning, Mm -hmm. but they have seeded Sacramento County Office of Ed and LA County Office of Ed to do some groups of school districts with grants. So I think it's a way to start to make this change. And that goes to a question that I want to ask, which is, I'm aware that the number of education programs that are aligned to a scientific approach to reading has increased from about, oh, a low of 35% when NCTQ looked in 2013 to about 51%. Now, we don't know where that's going to be now, and we're hoping it will increase, but we also made the standards a bit stronger. So we're not certain yet where that's going to go. But what do you think we can do in general to accelerate the increase of universities that want to get on board? And I think you alluded to some of this, and it has to do with who's the customer for these teachers coming out of these universities. I think we have to learn from the willing, these people who are stepping forward. We have to learn what the needs are. We have to learn what kinds of supports work for them. You know, we have really good professional development through Nye House and others for teachers, for school leaders. What's the system for a professor who's the person who's supposed to know it all? They're supposed to be the expert who has perhaps built their career on some other approach to instruction. What's the mechanism for them to learn? How do they get mentored to make changes? How do they get release time to learn, to experience delivering explicit direct instruction to children so that they can teach it to others? What is that mechanism to make those things happen? Those are the changes that need to happen to really get this going. That's what we need to accelerate this process. We can't go individual by individual, which is sort of where we are now. We have the Stars and Higher Ed Alliance. We have the Reading League's community of practice, but we're not equipped to support every university professor who wants to make this change. So that infrastructure, I think, is what would really help to accelerate this. Having good models, knowing what's needed, knowing the most efficient way to build the skills of folks so that they can then reach a hand out to others and help move them along as well. 
Can I ask you a question, Stephanie, about what you just shared with us? I'm curious. You've said something pretty interesting there that I don't think that we highlight enough. So if we do think about this as a science of reading, then it's an applied science. Yes. So engineering is an applied science of physics, for example. Industrial organization psychology is an applied science of social psychology. I was a cognitive scientist and cognitive neuroscientist by training. That is a theoretical kind of a basic science field. But people talk about the science of learning. Well, applied cognitive science is what that is. And that's what people are leaning on. They're leaning on my former postdoc mentor, Dr. Valerie Reyna, when she was setting up IES and the Castle Line. That was there to fund applying cognitive science to education through our Department of Education. Valerie set that up. That was strategic. That was put in place to fund research that gives us the science of learning. You said that you think that people need a release time to deliver and learn for themselves how to do this work in an applied sense. Do you think that's mission critical to be able to teach people how to teach reading to others? I'm not sure is the honest answer. I'm not sure because I'm not in that situation. So I don't know. I have had the great fortune of teaching children. So I have that experience in my own background, but I'm concerned that if you don't have that experience, if it's all an academic exercise for you to take on this new learning and you don't know what that really is like to be diagnostic and prescriptive with a child in front of you, I'm not sure. I just don't know. It's one of the things that we need more study of. How do we make that transformation? You know, Stephanie, I really respect you saying I'm not sure. And I have to think, as a cancer survivor, if I had an oncologist who had never worked with a cancer patient or the last plane that I took, if I had a pilot who had never flown the plane but knew the theory, I wouldn't have felt secure. Yeah. And so I think that's a really powerful question that Tim raised and that we really need to engage in authentically because this is high stakes. You know, my sister, Terry Nolan, gave me this phenomenal book, Undiagnosed, The Ugly Side of Dyslexia by Amir Baraka. And I devoured that book. And I wept over that book. And I thought about my students when I was teaching in inner city Detroit, and even in bedroom communities where children were falling through the cracks and how high the stakes are for our most vulnerable children. And I, I really think we need to press hard into that question because it's so high stakes for so many people who are our most vulnerable. It's the highest of stakes, honestly. But think about what that's asking. You know, a tenured professor at a university to take on the position of being a novice and a learner. And I don't know about that. I honestly don't know about that. I don't know if I can ask that of my colleagues. I'm unsure about that. And I don't know where that leaves us. These are just questions, you know, that keep me up at night. I'm not sure what the solution is. I know, but I keep hearing you say, I don't know, I don't know. And you have the courage to say that. And I wonder if I'm willing to be an undergraduate in a class and think that somebody has the authority and the demeanor to teach me something about an applied field if they don't acknowledge what they don't know or what they haven't had firsthand experience about. That's fair. 
I think about medical training because I did hold two professorships at UT Southwestern Medical School and worked along the faculty to train future people in the medical field for a while. It's one of the things that I did. And, you know, there were different courses with different people. And so teaching a basic science class is different. And I taught people how to run an MR scanner. And I taught people a little bit about MR physics. And I taught them a lot about experimental design and how we could do functional neuroimaging research to answer basic science questions. I did not teach them how to wield a scalpel. I did not teach them, even though I was a professor of radiology, how to read for clinical purposes the MR scans that I was training them to acquire. I think those are two different things. And so I do think that we have to say, I don't know either, Stephanie, the answer to the only question I asked. But as a society, I do think that we have to pause and ask ourselves if we can come to an answer and an agreement about what that means. Because at least in the medical sciences, I may have taught students how to run an MR scanner, but I passed the baton to a medical radiologist to teach them how to interpret and read that scan. And you're a school psychologist, so you know how to administer tests. You also know how to read and interpret those, and you would probably pass the baton over to somebody that has more advanced skills about how to differentiate and plan instruction about how to deliver that instruction. So maybe a little more humility and a little more teamwork might be something needed because in the medical sciences, we save lives when we have that. Well, this is why I guess I'm so, so enthusiastic about the people who are stepping forward who are saying, I don't know enough, I want to learn. They're looking for help and support. These are brave educators. These are brave university professors who are doing exactly what we're talking about and recognizing that they have a responsibility, that they can't just continue in light of what is now coming out as the science of reading, that they can't just continue with their old practices, that they need to update, they need new learning. And I think that's just incredibly courageous. I'm not having to change my model. I was trained in this knowledge base, but I recognize what an incredible thing that is that people are going through. I have so much respect for those professors who are making that shift. So it's an honor to have a role in supporting their work. Yeah, but it's not unprecedented, even in the sciences. We understand now that small sample sizes and quantitative research and our draconian old linear models are going to be insufficient moving forward. We have to either adjust, calibrate, and retool and retrain and use a lot more advanced statistical modeling and account for more individual differences on our experimental methodology, or we're going to perish and not be able to answer the meaningful questions that move us past what we've already learned from the 20th century. The 21st century is going to have to advance in scientifically and empirical science along more sophisticated models. And that is taking a lot of us empirical researchers to have to question what is our role going to be and how are we going to recalibrate? Machine learning is now a thing that's real. For example, Bayesian models are going to be a lot more prevalent in statistics. Mixed effects, multi-level models where we account for a lot of things are going to be the norm moving forward. And these are not what a lot of the current professors in psychological science programs were skilled to do. But if we want to teach our students to be relevant and have careers moving forward, we're going to have to adapt or perish is the way I look at it. So I don't think that we're asking educators to do much different in those colleges of education as I think what my peers in psychological science and other fields have to do to survive and thrive. If you want me to be brutally honest about my lay of the land right now, I don't think this is unique to education. Maybe that'll help us come to a 
good solution faster. You know, Stephanie, one of the things that I notice in all of this work, and once again, I'm going to build on my background knowledge of what I experienced, is because I see myself both as leading at a large level with the work that I do at Learning Ally, but I'm also a practitioner with the students that I tutor because I tutor students. And so the minute that I finished my PhD work, and here I am, I have access to all this research because of my PhD program. I have access to spaces where I can have thoughtful conversation and dialogue with others about practices in the classroom. And then when my university email got cut off, I was cut off from all of that academic content. And I was frustrated. Of course, you can go find things that are open access online, but a lot of it is behind this wall. It is behind this paywall moment where your people, your practitioners in front of students don't get access to this. Do you see that as an issue and a problem? If so, what can we do about it? Gosh, yeah, this is something I think about a lot. I have a subscription membership for educators called the Reading Science Academy. And these are folks who are very interested in aligning their practice to the reading research. They're hungry to know about research. And they will ask me, for research articles. They'll ask me to get them a PDF of a study that they've heard about here or there. And so I'm happy to do that for them. So they don't have to pay $45 to get that publication. And then they realize, I don't know how to read this. I don't know how to understand what's in this research. So it's a multi-layered problem. They don't have the preparation to understand the statistics to understand the research design, to understand the assessment tools that were used, and to be able to read it critically and draw their own conclusions, not just take the author's word for it, to understand what kind of publication it even is, if it's a peer-reviewed journal or if it's more of an opinion publication or if it's somebody's blog. This is a whole area that educators are cut off from. So not only can they not get access to the article, it's all of the rest of this around the topic. And we've got a system of publication that creates that barrier. You know, print publication is incredibly expensive. I'm sure the professional associations and so forth that produce the journals, they have to fund that somehow. I don't know what the solution is there, but I've been struggling with that on many levels with my folks that I interact with through the membership. So I try to be supportive of that. But yeah, I'm going to go all the way back to my original comments about the silos within universities. Researchers are not publishing for educators. Their consumer is not the teacher in a first grade classroom. And I don't know if people understand this when they think about the gap between research and practice. They're publishing for their own career advancement, they're publishing for their funders. They're publishing for their peers, other researchers. They're not publishing for consumption by a high school principal. So the divide impacts the work that we're trying to do. These silos have influence over all of the aspects of what we're trying to do. And so like many complicated problems, it's a multi-layered 
set of solutions that we have to create. I'd like to just jump in as the editor-in-chief for one research publication and the consulting editor for another that, yeah, these are not questions that the current publishing companies such as Springer Nature are oblivious to. Open access is something that's real, but they do have a cost model that has to drive a business. The proliferation of cost model journals is really wearing on the service industry of professors like myself. We often commiserate about the number of reviews that we're asked to do daily for these for-profit companies that we volunteer our time to provide service to. Because we historically have been trained that we are benefiting through the service of others. I've started to realize more and more the business model. And it wasn't until we really saw a huge jump and spike in the number of people that were publishing these that I realized there must be a market and they're making money off of this. But to your point, I do think that there's an opportunity to have specific asks for people like me, who are research scientists, who also are practitioners. I've said I've done a lot, but I have taught kids how to read everybody. And I did go through two years of training to do it within a limited context. So I think that's important. I think there is a role for us to have a peer-reviewed process and get away from educational op-eds, but to hold ourselves accountable in how we translate and communicate, and maybe thinking more about how we could have publications that have some type of a peer review with a mixed editorial board, which I know the Reading League's journal is trying to be, and maybe we should have Emily Solari on as a guest at some point on this podcast or a future one there. But I wonder about the approaches and the models out there for trying to bridge this gap, which is going to have to be collaborative and a team-based approach to bring together the people who can really speak to this, because it's a real schism to think about the research questions that are most meaningful to meet the needs in the schools today. And especially when the funding models, it take us years to get federal funding to do the work in the first place. So you only get one shot at an IES grant, for example, everybody. And that's the big federal funds to fund educational research in the United States. And you have to build up that proposal and you have to wait for the next year to do it again. If it's going to take you two cycles, then an idea that might've been germinated three years earlier is finally going into a three-year study phase. That's a six-year lag. So we've got the barrier of fast science and science being able to move quickly, but then the dissemination of that science is really going to be important. We have the National Center on Improving Literacy, which part of their mission is to do that. But I do think there's an opportunity to have an elevated conversation around how do we responsibly translate science to the public in a way that is actually grounded and refereed. I think that's a really important point. I really wrestled with through trial and error. Is it correct to expect classroom teachers to consume research? You know, we throw around this term, the science of reading, but it's not like you can just go to an index and find the one study on a topic. You know, people will say, tell me the research that says we should teach explicitly instead of implicitly. Send me the study on that. Well, it's impossible. It's a body of evidence. It's a convergence of evidence. And do we expect classroom teachers to spend their free time reading research studies. I don't know. I say trial and error because I've made some attempts to support people to do that, the ones who are interested in and in looking for that. And it's very, very difficult because they don't have that background knowledge and preparation. So I'm not sure that's the realistic expectation is to say that teachers need access to refereed journal publications and research in that way. 
or if the emphasis should be more on the translation of that. Again, more things to ponder. Stephanie, I think you just nailed it. We need an intermediary, someone to translate down. Love that idea. We need lots of those people. I'm trying to be one of them. It's very, very challenging. I don't think I'm necessarily good at it, but I recognize that as a role that we need an army of people who can do that translation. Yeah, I often think about one of my other mentors, Dr. Reed Lyon, as he would talk to me about his motivations for various things that he did. He really highlighted the National Reading Report was going to be a different approach to the synthesis and the translation. It was going to take a meta-analytic approach. It was going to be an empirical synthesis of what had been shown. Now, it's under critical eyes, but since then, most of the practice guides from IES, the Institutes of Educational Science, have adopted the approach that Reed modeled for educational sciences, which is to take a meta-analytic approach. So forming an expert committee, doing a systematic review with these technical support teams, and then letting the science speak for itself through the consensus of what we found. And I think that I always point to the Barbara Foreman's team's guide on like the early elementary foundational skills practices for understanding language, and that they really confirmed many of the original consensus. And what they used was since the publication of the NRP, the National Reading Panel's report, they reviewed systematically under meta-analysis the research that had been published since then. Now, there is a caveat. The ones that have been published are funded by IES, but I think that one of Reed's legacies among the many was asking us to take a real qualitative and quantitative approach to doing it and then having two documents that would come, the high-level indicators of what we should do and then really practical implementation of how this might look in a classroom. And we often forget that the National Reading Panel report had a practice guide with it that actually showed how that could be implemented in the classroom. And I think that's the legacy there. It had those two pieces. If you go to IES's website, there's a bunch of topics that they've done this synthesis of. And I may be biased because Reed's a dear mentor and friend of mine, but I do think that was one of his great gifts to society was to approach it in that way. Yeah, that's a great model. Thanks for bringing that up. No, that really brings to mind for me, Stephanie and Tim, Something I heard Dr. Jakob Petscher tell me that it takes over 10 years for this implementation science to translate to classroom practice. And I just think regardless of how you feel about the vaccine, think about if that had been the pace at which we moved during this pandemic. And as high stakes as that was, children becoming literate for a lifetime is just as high stakes. And I'm thinking about the teachers who are in-service teachers Stephanie, what is the best way to build teacher knowledge so that it actually translates to application of those practices with conscious competence and confidence? Yeah, I think the experiences that I've had with quality in-service professional development have involved time for learning, integration with the system, so acknowledgement of the current context that they're living in, whether that's the needs of the students or their schedule or the curriculum materials that they have. And coaching that integrates feedback. So observation and feedback to the instructor so that there's an expectation that's quantified and communicated and shared ahead of time. And then there is high quality supportive but critical feedback about where the teacher hit the mark, 
and miss the mark, again, linked to the student outcomes, keeping it connected to what you did as it was effective or not quite as effective as it could be for the students. Those are some of the elements that I think need to be in place to help move along our in-service teachers. And I'll go back to our earlier conversation about the school leaders. If they are not setting the vision in their schools and districts, if they're not providing the leadership to allow and cause that learning to happen, they're not resourcing it and prioritizing it, then the change is not going to actually happen. How can I lead when I don't understand right. that degree of vulnerability to admit it and then to find out what to do? Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for this conversation. I think we uncovered a lot of things. I had many aha moments. I know my co-host did throughout this conversation. And I think we also had some discovery of here's some gaps that we see and what we could do better. Thank you so much for being here. Tim, my friend, thank you for leading the conversation with Stephanie. I've got to thank my dear friends, Linda and Tracy as well. Next time on our Literacy Leadership Podcast mini-series, we're going to bring you another amazing guest. Thanks so much for being with us. We hope you found it inspiring and insightful. Remember, our community at Learning Ally is more than just this podcast. It's a vibrant, supportive network of peers and like-minded individuals who share passions and interests in advancing and understanding evidence-based literacy instruction. By joining our community, you'll unlock a world of opportunities. You'll be part of a space that offers exclusive content and discussions to fuel your growth. Networking opportunities with renowned thought leaders, colleagues, and peers, and a platform that supports and encourages you to share your ideas, experiences, and insights. We're inviting you to take the next step and become an active member of our community. Your voice matters, and we can't wait to hear that voice. It's easy to get started. Simply click the community link in the podcast description. Your presence and contributions will make our community stronger and more vibrant. We're truly grateful that you are here. Thank you for listening today. And we can't wait to welcome you into the community. Remember, none of us are alone in this journey. And we're here to support one another every step of the way. Until next time, stay connected, stay inspired, and stay a part of our wonderful community.